Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We hope you enjoy our journey through the book of Acts, exploring the many powerful actions of Jesus Christ as he continues to move and teach us through his apostles by his Holy Spirit, empowering the explosion of the church to expand from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which is you and me right here and right now, where we move from spectators to participants and join with Paul in preaching the gospel with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's now join Pastor Jordan Moody in our new series, Acts, The Movement Begins. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. All right, let's turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 17. We're going to continue on our series in Acts. We'll be going through Acts for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Even into the first week or two of Advent, we'll still be staying in Acts. Uh, Some of the prayer and chairs will be focusing on Advent. Then we'll transition into uh, more of a Christmas series right before Christmas and Christmas Eve and such. So looking forward to that today. Uh, We're looking at this story from Acts chapter 5 verse 17. We'll be reading to the end of the chapter. I'm going to pray and then we'll we'll begin with that. So verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. This is after last week with um, the, the church had everything in common. They're working together in one fellowship, and then Ananias and Sapphira, that situation, and then many signs and wonders were being done, Uh, the gospel was being proclaimed, and um, yes, it was just this explosion of the Holy Spirit and works, and so then right on the heels of that, it says in verse 17, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. That word zoe is the word, Greek word of life. Speak life to them. Verse 21, and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came, those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but we opened the doors and we found nobody inside. Verse 24, and when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but, here's a key phrase, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. A little bit of a foreshadowing for what's to come in a chapter or two. Verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying this, we strictly charge you not to teach in the name, in this name. It's funny, they don't even say the name. It's like Voldemort or something. You don't say the name, right? And, And yet here, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring, again, this man's blood upon us. But Jesus Uh, Sorry, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 
and God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. That's his speech he makes to the council. Then the next verse, verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But the Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. A little bit of a cool down. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care for what you do to the, with, with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. Verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew some away to follow after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Verse 38, so in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this is the plan, or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. So he took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them, just for good measure, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We present them before you today. God, thank you that you are using your revelation to transform us and shape us. God, I ask that you would bolster us today. You would give us boldness for your truth and your word, no matter the circumstance. God, that we would always boldly proclaim the name of Jesus, that we would always obey you no matter what. Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you for the testimonies of these apostles. I thank you, Lord, for this church and the light that it is in this area, the salt that it is preserving in this, in this needy region of the country. I pray, God, you would continue to build your church, use your scripture today to teach us this truth, and transform us in your presence today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So that passage is a powerful passage. We're going to be looking at that really, that key phrase today as we'll look at it. The phrase right there in the middle of the passage, we must obey God rather than men. And to illustrate that to start, I'm going to show you a video here in a, in a one second or, sh or so. Um, it's a story, one I've shared uh, before. I've actually mentioned this character before in the past. His name is Brother Andrew. I lived from 1928 and just passed away last year in 2022. His most famous book is called God's Smuggler. It's a, it's a, I've actually read a passage of it to you in, in the past. Um, his 
he's famous for smuggling Bibles behind uh, the, the Iron Curtain, uh, b- behind places that are closed off to the gospel, going to the most dangerous areas of the world and bringing the gospel uh, to places like North Korea and places in China and places uh, that you, like in behind the Soviet Union back then. And so the, his famous book was called God Smuggler, but this is like a little bit of a testimony video that helps you get a little bit of a sense of who he was and his legacy. And so I thought it'd be helpful to think how he really chose to obey God rather than men in this example. So hopefully that will be able to play uh, right now. Thanks. Well, now, the first trip across, you just pulled up to the border. Is that when you prayed and said, God, uh, let the seeing not see at that time? Or was that That's what we call my smuggler's prayer when I say, Lord Jesus, when you were on earth, you've made so many blind eyes to see. Now, it's the same job for you to make seeing eyes blind, but you've got to do it now. And if he doesn't, then I've had it. I cannot outsmart the custom guards. Just think, when I pull my car in there and I get out to show my papers, I've had situations where they took four hours to search. Two fellows in the front of my vehicle, two in the rear, two underneath, and two standing there to watch the expression on my face to see if I was getting nervous. <laughs> what can you do? And all the time they couldn't find the Bible? Well, I've never lost one Bible in 20 years. That I've done. God spoke to me again through his word. Awake, strengthen what remains, which is at the point of death. Then I understood I have to go to the Christians. And I said, Lord, yes, but how? I think we in the West, this is a personal confession. I think we are cowards. We ought to become people of guts and courage and strong convictions and don't count our lives dear unto ourselves. to God's permission. It was so big and bold, that endeavor. We did it in one night. Time Magazine here says it was the boldest expedition that they have ever uh, witnessed in missions. And I'm glad we were part of it. We did it, but we did it in Jesus' name.
Now that I've come of age, more and more people ask, Andrew, what do you want written on your tombstone? I have options. One of them sounds very pious. He's not here, he's risen. Or another option is, he did what he couldn't. Or, like Oswald Chambers' gravestone, I visited that graveyard in Zaytun in Egypt. Oswald Chambers, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That gives glory to God, a disciple of Jesus Christ. helps to paint a little bit of the picture for this passage today. I wanted to try to connect something for you to be able to grasp that this standing up for our faith and speaking out the truth of God is not something just back in the book of Acts, but it's also something that we see even around us today. And as Brother Andrew's life really gave us a wonderful example, what a legacy he left, what an impact uh, he made in some of the most difficult regions in the world. Some of the most closed off places to the, to, the, to the Word of God, where literally today some of you have a Bible in your hands or on your phone, or we saw it on the screen earlier. I'm holding a Bible in my hand, and we count it for granted. I have multiple translations of it. I hold it in my hand, and yet there are many places in the world where you can be arrested and put to death for this book, for your faith for the truth that is found in these words. And Peter and John and the apostles faced a similar situation. They faced a situation where there were people seeking to try to eliminate them, kill them, and stop the message that they were preaching, and yet they boldly proclaimed the truth because they were, as he had said a few chapters earlier, we cannot but preach the name of Jesus. <laughs> we cannot stop, for we will obey God rather than men. And so that's what I want us to kind of think through, have that in the back of the mind as, uh, of our minds as we look at this passage. The beginning of this chapter, though, in verses 17, 18, 19, kind of towards the beginning here, we get to see this, this satanic opposition that continues. Last week, we talked about spotting, if you recall, if you were here with me last week, we talked about spotting three major satanic opposition, the three major ways Satan seeks to oppose the spread of the gospel and the work of the church. Maybe some of you can remember those or you talked about them in your uh, small groups, but we looked at ultimately the first one is this physical persecution, often physical persecution in, the, in, a, in a way, and, and then the second one, he seeks to oppose the, the work of the church in Jesus Christ, Satan will seek to subvert that and come within through a moral compromise or moral internal struggle that goes on often from within the church. So often you get this without, outside of the church persecution, then a moral subversion of sin and compromise happening from within. And then the third one, maybe the most subtle, is this aspect of professional distraction. 
the busyness of life distracting everyone from what's truly important. Often he goes right after the leaders at the top. If he can distract them to things away from prayer and away from the preaching, away from doctrine and truth, if he can distract the leaders away from that, then the entire body is is left far more exposed. So these are the three main ways. And so last week, especially moral subversion was highlighted. This week, we're going to be jumping back, looking at the physical persecution, as that is going to be the first and foremost thing here. And then next week, chapter 6, you'll see the professional distraction try to come in. And he will seek to distract right there in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 is where that one is highlighted. But here we get this beginning. There, there's this word used in verse 17 uh, that the Sadducees and the leaders and the high council there, uh, what would be known as the Sanhedrin, this is the council of Jewish leaders responsible for the governing of the Israelite people at that time. The Sanhedrin was this governing body among Pharisees and Sadducees, priests and leaders. And so they are not too thrilled with what is going on to the point where it says they were filled with jealousy. If you remember last week in Acts chapter 5, it said that, that um, Ananias and Sapphira, they were filled with this spirit of Satan, almost that Satan had filled them and filled their hearts with this, with this deception and this lie. Here, they are filled not with the spirit, but with jealousy. They are filled with such jealousy. I love the way James Montgomery Boyce writes this. He just summarizes it. They were jealous of Jesus because it was his name rather than theirs that was being proclaimed. They were also jealous of the apostles because they were preaching powerfully and doing miracles and because people were following them. The religious leaders wanted both of these things. They wanted to be well-known and to have a name among the people, and they wanted the people to follow them, not Jesus. This is something that I think just screams, it just screams at us off the page and it, and it convicts all of us as we can tend to be jealous for certainly the wrong reasons. Even potentially as we see other people succeed in our lives, we sense this envy and this jealousy against what God is doing. Perhaps it's even another ministry, another church, even in our own area that is succeeding. You could say that the gospel is going out in that place. God is doing a great work among that people and transforming people. And we, and maybe I'm speaking for myself and elders and leaders, we can tend to have this spirit of jealousy that really comes in and seeks to say, wait a second, they're supposed to be listening to me, not them, right? And you, you have this sense of jealousy against a name, not my name. My name should be the big, no, it's the name of Jesus that they're jealous against. And ultimately, they're focused on one issue that they're going to mention later, and they mentioned a few chapters as well when they interrogated Peter and John, but it was always centered around the name of Jesus, and in particular, his resurrection. This talk about this resurrected person, and notice how I pointed out to you while we were reading that they didn't even want to say his name, (laughs) just that guy's name, and the person that you said we killed, that person you say rose from the dead, we're not going to talk about him, but you know who I'm talking about, right, is what they're saying. And so that name of Jesus and the power of the resurrection was something that caused such jealousy and anger within this group of supposed leaders. And so, what did they do? Well, they arrested him. They did what they could. They had power and authority to walk over and arrest anybody they want and throw them in jail. They put him in a public prison, but here comes the jailbreak. 
There's jealousy that starts, but then we get this miraculous story of jailbreak. And there's several instances in the book of Acts that you will see that people are broken out of jail. Uh, Several situations where an angel or the doors bust open or an angel leads them out. Here's one instance, kind of the first time this happens in a miraculous way, where the angel of the Lord opened up the prison doors and brought them out. And then the angel of the Lord says, hey, go and go teach the people. Go speak to the people. Tell them about the words of life these words of resurrection life. You go preach and you go tell them that. And that's what they do. And in fact, then the priests get together in their nice little council. Uh, They get in their nice little room and then they tell the prison guards, hey, go fetch the guys we're going to inquire today. We're going to interrogate them today. Go get them. And the guards go and they go to the jail and everything's closed up and locked the way it's supposed to be, yet there's nobody there, you know. They're, they're confused. They don't know where they've gone. Uh, they start freaking out a little bit, thinking, did we leave the door open unlocked? Did we forget to lock up at night? What, it, what, what did we do wrong? Are we going to pay with this with our own head? Because our job has failed. And so they go back. They tell the whole high council, that, uh, we don't know where they are, actually. We put them there last night, but they're not there. What do we do? And then the uh, people were greatly perplexed. It said they were confused. And then what's humorous about this whole story is they all begin to be confused about what they're going to do now, and yet someone just comes in and says, um, excuse me, but if you look right over there, I think that's them right over there preaching the gospel of Jesus to all these people. It reminded me of a story. I was talking to my wife about this. We had two wonderful little bunnies, and I use the word had. We, we had two wonderful little bunnies at our house for the last, I don't know, two years or so, or maybe it just seems longer than that. I'm not sure. But we had two little bunnies for the girls, and my daughters loved them, took care of them, and it was a wonderful thing. They absolutely loved these bunnies. We gave them to them for Christmas one year. They were outside in a cage, and um, notice all the past tense kind of phrases here, but um, we had these two bunnies, and when we first got them, there was, uh, I remember it distinctly, the first time they escaped, and I say first time because they escaped many times. These things were escape artists. We had this all set up and made, this little cage prison thing, right, you know, and uh, they were had this cuff, comfy cush living, and uh, they uh, escaped. And I remember the first time thinking, when we went down there, and they weren't there, and I think my, my heart dropped, my wife was like, oh no, you know, how are we going to break it? To my beautiful daughter, Charlie and Taylor, how are we going to tell the girls the bunnies are gone and they ain't coming back? I mean, we live in Dublin, way out in the woods, and you know, uh, it is just unlikely that they survive the night. And we were just trying, I'm trying to like, you know, it's okay, we're going to be able to tell the girls, it's going to be all right. Nobody cry, nobody get, you know, and so my wife's over there bundling up the kids to try to go outside and look for them. She's getting on all the stuff. We're going to go outside, we're going to find them. And I remember just the, the comical way of it. it we, we go outside and we're just like imagining it's going to be like a day-long search all over the woods. And you go out and right there on the edge of the woods, there's the bunnies. You know, it's like they ran out of stamina or they worked so hard to get out of the cage. They didn't realize, you know, to keep going or they just didn't know what to do. They weren't exactly the smartest animals of all time. And so there they are. Of course, then it's a comical scene watching us try to then corral them and run through the woods with all the kids trying to get the bunnies back in uh, kind of a funny, funny scene. But it was hilarious to think, we thought they were going to be gone. Well, they're never going to find them again. A coyote must have gotten them. And now, well, they're here. And so they come back, right? 
And we won't tell you what's gone on with them now since then. But at that point, they were great. Um, but at the, what, the fascinating thing, when I'm reading this passage, it just reminded me of that. And I get a smile on my face just because the funniness and the, the humor that I think is written into this passage of how hilarious it is that they didn't go away and try to like throw away their burner phone and get away from CCTV. And they try to you know, make sure that they hunker down and hide in a place. Only use cash. Don't use credit cards because they'll follow you. Right? We, you've watched all these spy movies where you're trying to run for the government, right? They don't do any of that. They get out of prison, and the angel says, why don't you go preach? And they're like, well, we'll just go to the exact same place we were preaching before. So we're going to walk over here, and what are they doing in the morning when everyone wakes up? Uh, they're doing the exact same thing they were doing the day before, preaching and teaching about the name of Jesus. And it's hilarious. They don't run. They're not afraid. They're not afraid at all. They have a boldness that, that gives them just power and confidence to speak what they know that they are supposed to speak, to say what they know that they're supposed to say, that the Spirit of God is with them in such a manner, in such a way, that they are emboldened to continue to preach that message to the people who are desperately in need, even when danger is right around the corner, when danger is lurking right around the corner. And so, this is that next word here, it's really this jealousy, this... Um, this jailbreak, and then we get this boldness that comes about. And there's some accusations that come about. If you look at after they go and bring them not by force, it's just, hey, you want to, you know, as the teacher might come to you at school, kids, and teach you, hey, can you just stop by my office on the way back? And you're like, what? Or that uh, after school or after, after the class is over, you want to just hang back? Everyone else can go. You just stay here. Got to chat, right? It's never a good thing. And so the teacher comes by and says, hey, you want to just uh, come over to our office and to the council for a few minutes? You just got some things to chat about. You're like, okay, oh boy, here it comes. Verse 27, when they brought them, they set them before the council. The high priest, who has been featured many times here and was featured back when Jesus was going through his trials and improper trials, you could say there at night there, before when he was arrested in Gethsemane, the high priest questioned them, saying what? strictly charge you not to teach the name, and yet you fill all Jerusalem with this teaching of the name. And then you intend to bring that man's blood upon us. You accuse us. How dare you? So we accuse you that you disobeyed something we told you to do. You're teaching in the name of Jesus. You're talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, that we're somehow responsible for that. Look how they just try to like defer blame. They just try to defer anything. We're not responsible. We did what we're supposed to do. And yet these same men had riled up crowds, paid people off, no doubt, to start screaming the name of Barabbas out in front. Is this man innocent, Pilate would say? Like, I don't know if we should really crucify him. Crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, they said. And then they scream and yell out to Pilate, let his blood not be upon you. For Pilate says, I'm washing my hands of this. This isn't my fault. This isn't my problem. This is yours. And it says, let his blood be upon us and our children, they said. And so we see this extraordinary screaming of wrath and anger and rebellion against the one who is called king of the Jews or the king of kings. And so they charge them, they are accusing them, and yet they also feel guilty. You can tell that they're afraid and operating out of fear. And what is the answer? The, the answer is a verse that is known in such a way that it's almost... 
I dare say most of you probably even knew this phrase, we must obey God rather than men, but you maybe didn't know where it was found in the Bible, but you for sure knew that phrase. It's used in so many different contexts, as it should. It's a powerful verse. Verse 29, Peter said to the apostles, uh, sorry, sorry, and the apostles. I love how Peter and the apostles, it's just a side note, Peter often speaks on behalf of the apostles. He's often that spokesperson for the whole group. He's been featured all the way up here till chapter 6. Um, but here we see Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That is the key statement here. The key statement obviously here is the questioning of the authority. Who is in charge? Who's really in charge here? Because all the peer pressure is on them to just, you know, be quiet, don't rock the boat, let's just get out of here and then we can regroup. Peter's like, hey, we ain't, we ain't regrouping. We're just <laughs> saying it how it is right here, right now, okay? And they just speak out. There's this, this um, description to me that brings to mind, perhaps you're familiar with these stories or you grew up in Sunday school and you were taught these stories as a kid. You think of the book of Daniel and the two major instances where Daniel is specifically in this same exact situation. The first one comes to mind is in the book of Daniel chapter 3. Remember the three guys? My, my kids were going over this story the other day and we were trying to say the names. They're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And having Judson try to t- say any of those names is pretty funny. But uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why is Daniel 3? What, what are we talking about here in this regards to this chapter? This is that story. King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And he builds this giant statue to himself and says that everyone ought to bow down to this thing, right? And if you don't, what's going to happen? Do you kids remember this story? If you don't bow down to this giant golden statue and the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, if you don't, you will be, you know, just tossed into a burning fiery furnace, right? And then this burning fiery furnace is this threat, and you are to see who is the authority in the land of Babylon. It is King Nebuchadnezzar. You bow down to that. And who, who did? Well, everyone bowed down to it except three people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They stood up. King Nebuchadnezzar was not very happy about these, this, and he took them, and he, as it said, he heated up the furnace seven times hotter than it had already been heated. And he says this when he says, what, you know, who's going to deliver you? Which God is going to deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer him and say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. You are not an authority here in regards to this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he doesn't, if he chooses in his sovereignty not to, Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Just making that clear. This is what, so we're all on the same page here. This is our faith and our statement of belief, right? And so then what happens? We know the story potentially. There's, they throw them in there. Nebuchadnezzar runs over and he looks in and he says, but I, I, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt and their appearance is the fourth like the son of God's. It is said whether an angel or Jesus himself incarnate there was walking with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the fire. They are saved. They are untouched. The fire did, had no harm upon them at all. 
And then Nebuchadnezzar says, we are going to worship that God because that's incredible. And there's this kind of mini revival almost in a way. Then you turn over to Daniel chapter 6 and you read about the story, maybe a little bit more well known, is Daniel and the lion's den. Remember that one? The storyline there is a little bit more subverted in the sense that these men did not like Daniel and the position of authority that he was in. And so they created a law, made up a law, and they knew the king was all about himself, so they go to King Darius and say, hey, let's make a law that nobody can pray to anybody but you. I mean, that sounds good, right? Sign here on the dotted line. So he signs on the dotted line, they make a law, nobody can pray to anybody but Darius, and they know that Daniel's going to be praying to a different god than Darius. They go right there, they wait for it, and it says this, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, and he gave thanks, it's the week of Thanksgiving, gave thanks before his God just as he had done previously. That law, that document did not change his conviction to honor God in prayer and give thanks to the one who gives him life. For the authority was not King Darius in this instance. The authority was always and will always be God. Then the men came by in agreement. They found Daniel making petition and prayer and plea before God, and then they said, I got you. And then they went to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Darius, and they threw him in the lion's den. God stops the mouth of the lions. And again, it's another example of God's glory being uh, presented before the whole nation and for the truth of God to be presented outwardly from that situation of two people standing up for what was right and ultimately saying, in this, we must obey God rather than men. And so you think about your own situation, our own places today. What is our 21st century example? We can think of, well, that was great for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was great for Daniel. That's great for the apostles there. But what about us today? What, what is our <laughs> modern situation? And I could give you a whole host of examples, right? There's a whole host of things that I think in some ways we have to be able to walk and navigate together as a church and as a people who are to be spreading the light of the gospel and are supposed to be salt in a culture. And we're also supposed to speak truth in love, right? So how is it that we operate in these things today? Is there a potential that the church of Jesus Christ, this church here, and the, the freedom of religion in this country could be stopped and pressed against? Absolutely, that's a real possibility. There's no right that we have uh, versus some other country that is, that is somehow, uh, you know, that God has given us to just say, well, only if you're free to preach the gospel, then you should preach the gospel. No, whether we are free to say the truth or not, we ought to be doing that. All the different things that are coming against, like who people are today, the moral reality of, of, of a person, what is a woman, what is a man, the reality of what true marriage really is. What makes up a family and a church? What's the building block of a nation? These truths that want to be distorted and changed in today's culture in any way possible to subvert the actual truth so that, so that Satan can continue to divert and cause so much pain upon people. And it's these kinds of things that we may see as our building in this country that may come against the truth, even in this pulpit and in this place, to suppress our ability to preach the truth even out in social media or have it eliminated and removed from that conversation in that space. Those things will not stop us. And yet there are challenges when we're trying to figure out how to navigate, especially as leaders. I can think back to 2020 during COVID and all of the things that we were trying to navigate with all the new information that was coming at us. What should we do? 
What should we meet? Should we not? Should we match? Should we not? What is going on? And are we to meet? And what is, are we not to meet? These kinds of things. And it was coming at us so hard and so fast. We saw often in that prayer meeting and that elders meeting thinking about what is it that God wants us to do with the people that we have right here? How can we best honor God and not um, fear the government? But also, how can we, as, um, as Jeremiah tells his people, how can we seek the welfare of the city that we are in? Seek the well. How can we bless our neighbors? And how can we be a good and loving neighbor? And yet, all the while, continue to obey God, not rather than men. That is sometimes takes a lot of wisdom and a lot of prayer to know what that is and what that line may be. However, we know that there will come a day, and there often comes a day for many of us, to simply proclaim the truth that we believe in. And you look at that, what Peter does. The, the line came, okay? It was drawn. We're going to obey God rather than men. And then look at verses 30, 31, 32. We see him begin to push back on this, and he preaches and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ right to the authorities. That was his responsibility. Peter. Now, now notice, he doesn't throw a hissy fit and get frustrated that you're taking away our rights. How dare you do this? He just says, look, I'm going to preach to you what I'm going to believe. And in fact, the government... Yes, does have authority in certain things. And maybe I can push back a little bit on what we just read and what we're reading right now. We live in the greatest state in all of the 50 states, amen? Or some of you maybe don't. But it is the live free or die state, right? Love New Hampshire. Born and raised, right? But this sense of live free or die, in in the word of God, we can even come in this kind of mentality, even as Christians, where we don't obey authority because we obey God rather than men, right? Right? Nobody tells us what to do, we might think to ourselves. I don't need to pay my taxes, right? Don't live free or die, man. I'm a Christian. I obey God rather than men. <laughs> Paul tells us in Romans 13, we're to submit to governing authorities. Old Testament teaches that God sets up kings and he takes them down. And so if we're pushing back on this, the government, we might say, can't tell me what to do. Yes, it can. <laughs> in fact, does very often. God says and God sets up government to curb evil. And that is what our hope is. And in a, in a society today where we vote, we aim to support the areas of government that will protect and preserve freedom and protect those who are in danger. Yes, and promote human flourishing and human freedom. These are the things in which we do it. But especially for the, us, I think, in New England, we're independent people, live free or die, Right? And we have a tendency, I think, that is not always the best. And I know this may not be popular for some people here, but that, that we, we don't like authority. And maybe that's just a natural human thing. We, we need to learn, even as Christian people living in a culture, we need to respect the authorities in our lives and not always be kicking against the goat. You can think, especially for us teenagers, <laughs> us teenagers, those of us who seriously still live like we're teenagers, you know what I'm saying? I'm talking to you, talking to me. Right? We, 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 we're not going to listen to that police officer. Police can't tell me what to do. I'll drive wherever I want, right? Well, you can, but police officers can tell you what to do, and you should listen to them, right? Like, and you're like, well, this is obvious. Well, no, it's not. I think sometimes we have this mentality of nobody tells me what to do, and then when we do that in simple, silly, stupid speed limit things, it becomes really difficult to say, I obey God rather than men in the actual things that really matter. Does that make sense? When we're always pushing against authorities in the small little details of things in which God has set them up, whether we agree with it or not, in the minor things of life, in the essentials and the gospel and a freedom of religion, 
it becomes more difficult because those two things become blended and they're messy together versus saying, look, we are going to honor those who are put in authority above us as best we know how. But when that line comes, when God is soiled and sullied upon, when we are told not to preach in the name of Jesus, when we are called to compromise on the truth and the essentials of the word of God, you can guarantee that we obey God rather than men, right? You guys understand what I'm saying here? So it is not just one of those things that we blanket statement every single thing that we want to do in life, okay? But rather, elevating what's truly important in life and honoring the people in our lives who have been placed in God-given authority. And that could be even for us kids as we look at our parents and we look at those kinds of situations. It is that God-given authority that we're supposed to honor. So we have to move on. We have to keep moving here. But what I want you to notice as he does, he doesn't throw a hissy fit or just says, you can't tell me what to do. He just says, we're going to beg God rather than men, and here's the message that I'm going to preach to you right now. Verse 30, verse 31, verse 32 is, is this cool idea. I want you to, before we kind of bring this to a close here, is this idea of kergama and didache. I know these are weird words. This word kergama is this idea in the Greek where you get this sense of what is the nutshell of the message being proclaimed. The word kergama is this idea, it means uh, really the message the preaching. It is the preaching and the proclamation of the core of the gospel. Does that make sense? Like, what is the core? What is the real nutshell? If you were to break it all down and give the gospel in a nutshell, what would it be? And that's what Peter does. He knows he doesn't have a lot of time, so he doesn't go into the didache. Didache means the teaching and the doctrine that was developed here in Acts and in the early church, passed down to us through generations that we teach. When I preach to you, I will give you the nutshell gospel as much as I can, yet I'm often going to teach you in a didache. I'm going to teach you doctrine and understandings about the very basis of faith. So these two things are both important, and yet here in this moment, he doesn't teach them as he was told to do to the people earlier. He preaches to them, and he proclaims the kergama, this central call of the kergama is listen up because beware, if you reject this message, there is a danger for you. And so Peter preaches, he proclaims with boldness. Again, this was Peter who a few months earlier was denying Jesus that he even knew him and now filled with the Holy Spirit boldly proclaims. And what is it that he proclaims? I want you to think of these things. Again, I, I'm borrowing from James Montgomery Boyce in this. He has four major statements in verse 30, 31, 32. Really, you could say it mimics 1 Corinthians 15 where it says, you know, what is the, the true gospel in accordance with the scriptures? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas and he ascended, okay? So look at this, verse 30 this is the crucifixion. He begins with that in some ways. He says, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. That crucifixion is crucial to our faith. Good Friday, the cross of Jesus Christ. The crucifixion is central. But then it goes right into that God raised him from the dead, the resurrection. So the first is crucifixion. Second is resurrection. He is dead, but he is alive. And often we end right there as, yes, those are as centrally important as it gets. But we notice he doesn't stop there. Verse 30, crucifixion, resurrection, God raised him from the dead. Verse 31, it goes into the ascension. I find this fascinating. It says that then God exalted him at the right hand as prince and savior or as leader and savior. 
God resurrected him, lifted him up in verse 31. He exalted him to the right hand. Whenever it says right hand, that is a placement and a statement and a position of authority. He has ability and he is able to carry out and do what he says because he stands and sits at the right hand of the authority and the throne of God. And so God raised him up whom you killed and then it says that God exalted him in his own right hand as prince and savior. This word prince or leader um, is a fascinating word that he doesn't just say uh, as savior. He says, but as both Lord and Savior, Prince and Savior, here the word is not Lord, it's archegos, which is founder, it is authority, it is leader, which I find fascinating because he is in this whole statement is saying to the council, what? You're not our authority. You're not our final authority. We serve the final authority who is the leader, the archegos, the Savior and the Prince of all. God, our King of Kings, Jesus, is our leader, not you. And then the fourth one, uh, sorry, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, this fourth one, is then us. He says, we are witnesses of this. The Holy Spirit confirms that witness within us, he says. Look, we are witnesses. We saw this with our own eyes. We're going to preach this message no matter what. And so in some ways, I could say, he gives what we've looked at, the two ways to live. If they can throw that slide up really briefly. We don't have a ton of time to go through this. We've gone over it in the last couple of weeks. But the two ways to live. Can we put that slide up, please? Or do we have that? Maybe not. Maybe something's frozen. We'll just move on. The two ways to live gospel presentation, that one, two, three, four, five, six. There's six major movements of the gospel. And it kind of brings us through. We've been talking about that in the sense there is in the back and on the welcome table. We have some ways to learn the two ways to live gospel proclamation. There it is. So that you can actually present the gospel in a nice orderly six-step process. My ninth and eighth graders have been memorizing and going through this together. And we've been learning what this is and how to present that to other people. But I think that's exactly what Peter does. He presents these six steps in some ways. Except mostly he focuses right on four and five for them versus the other one, two, and three. So moving on, we have this idea of persecution that comes at them at the end here. And yet Gamaliel stands up and says, um, he warns them. I love, this, I love this concept here as he makes a defense and persecution where Gamaliel, who actually taught Paul, you might be familiar with his name, uh, Paul is said to have sat at the feet of Gamaliel, this well-known professor, you could say. And he ultimately comes out and just says, whoa, before you guys kill these people off, let's just remember what's happened in the past of history. You remember this guy and that guy and this guy and that guy who thought they were something and yet we don't even think about them anymore? Why? Because they're gone. They rose up in, in rebellion and now they, we don't hear of them anymore. So if this is of man, it's going to fail, he says. But if it's of God, you don't want to be fa- caught in the place of opposing God. So he gives wisdom. In fact, Gamaliel steps up in this place, and you almost wonder what he's thinking. Yet, he doesn't go far enough. He doesn't say, hey, maybe we should start looking into our doctrine and teaching. Maybe we've missed something, and there's something to this Jesus person. No, he says, just don't kill him, and let time tell, right? And so, he defends them. And then persecution comes, though. They warn them, and then, like I said, they still beat them, just for good measure. You know, you can't not waste an opportunity for that. And then they charge them, hey, don't speak in the name of Jesus. We clear? We clear? Okay? So now you can go. All right? You may leave. And then what do they do? They go away sullen, 
angry that they were beaten. No, no, no. They are, I love this, rejoicing. Look at this. They rejoice. They, and then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And especially in an honor-shame culture as that first century would have been, to suffer the beatings and the public uh, defamement of their character in front of everyone before the Sanhedrin would have been a place where they would have, you thought, said shame, shame. But no, they, the opposite. Rejoice, rejoice. We are worthy to suffer just like Jesus has suffered in some small part. And then what did they do? They kept preaching. <laughs> Verse 42, they did not cease from teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. The Messiah and Savior of the world, his name is Jesus. And so I, I love this because it gives us a little bit of an insight, even to the very end of the book of Acts. We notice, as we remember, we've read this, I think, when we began in Acts 28, verse 31. I think when we began this whole series, we looked at the very last verse or two of the book of Acts. And this is Paul imprisoned again. And the very last verse of the book of Acts is this, verse Last two verses. He lived there two whole years and at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. He was under house arrest. Verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God. What was Paul doing? Proclaiming the kingdom of God. Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. With all boldness and without ceasing. He just kept preaching and teaching the name of Jesus. And if I could today, with the simplicity of what that message is for us today, there's so many things we can do and be a part of here at church, and they are a wonderful blessing. But at its very base level, let us be a church that seeks to preach and teach with all boldness and without hindrance and without ceasing the message of Jesus no matter what. Because here at Hope, we're going to be a people who are centered around the resurrection of Jesus Christ and are so captivated and filled with the person of Jesus that we cannot but share that life-giving message with the world around us. Come what may, right? Because here, we will obey God rather than men. And by obeying God, we are called to preach and proclaim the Kergama and the Didache, to teach and to preach the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this. We ask, I ask God, that you give me boldness in this. God, is convicted as I can become about this, Lord, in my shyness and my ability to speak with confidence. God, would you and your spirit give me the strength to speak truth and life and love in a culture that does not always want to hear it. God, help me to be able to give answers and yet to do it with gentleness and respect and yet with boldness and conviction. God, help me and this church to be a place that preaches your truth. Thank you, God, for your truth. Thank you for your word. God, we don't deserve it. But we're grateful to have the opportunity to participate with you in the building of your kingdom, the spreading of your kingdom, the message of the gospel, which is so important. Thank you for that. Thank you for these people. God bless them this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.